Well, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. It is great to be here. Um, thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, I am looking forward to sharing with you all uh, some thoughts uh, that are connected to some of my research, as well as some of my own experiences, um, as well as what's been going on, I think, for our denomination and uh, the larger body of Christians all across the United States and non-Christians all across the United States. So we want to mix it all in together and have some conversation with you all today. Uh, my first talk tonight is entitled A Place at the Table. And uh, we just had, uh, many of us had Thanksgiving and maybe Christmas. And I was thinking uh, that transition that happens when you're at the children's table and then you get invited to the adult's table. Has that, maybe it hasn't happened to some of you yet? I'm not sure, but one of these days is gonna be exciting where you're invited. Uh, a place at the table, but uh, my children are young. I've got a 15-year-old daughter who's a sophomore in high school and uh, two boys, uh, seventh grade and fifth grade, and uh, they're very content sitting at the children's table, but every once in a while, they like to pop off and come on campus and say, what's, what's in that glass? That Can I have a sip of that? Uh, whatever, and, you know, so it's, this, it's, it's entertaining, uh, but there will be a time when they will be at the table, and um, I think it's an interesting transition for me as a parent, will I ever treat them like adults? Will, have my parents ever transitioned fully to treat me as an adult? Or am I still always their baby? Who happens to have babies? Uh, it's an interesting reflection, isn't it? When you think about not in families, but if you think in other contexts, it's nice to have uh, people visiting. It's nice to have them at the table. Um, but are they truly one-to-one -one equal partners? Or is it some version of what I just explained, the way parents might look at their children. It's nice to have them around, but I don't really see them as equals. That's sort of the way I want to frame this conversation. The Bible has lots of examples of fellowship, breaking bread, uh, eating at a table. I'm talking about fellowship. I'm talking about community. I'm talking about relationships. And are they one-to-one? -one? I want to read a passage in scripture for you. It uh, comes in the book of Acts, chapter 6. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 4. So I have here um, Acts 6, 1 through 4. And here's um, the reading of the Lord. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenists among them complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the dis daily distri distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose among you seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Thus far the reading of God's word. Fascinating passage in the book of Acts, right? The passage that comes before it and all of Acts, in fact, is the example, what is stated here, the number of disciples was increasing. And that's an important distinction. Now, I'm at Azusa Pacific University, uh, Christian University on the West Coast, and uh, we've had this increase, uh, people were celebrating, an increased number of students on campus who are non-white, Latino primarily, uh, some African-American, uh, a few more Asian-Americans, like myself. And there's great celebration to say, oh, look at the Lord is bringing all these different people to campus, which is nice. But soon after that, on campus, the students of color 
Latino students, African-American students, were complaining. They were saying, wait, I don't understand. This is happening in class. Things are being said by my classmates. Things are being said by my faculty members. Uh, we're not happy. I thought of this passage because it's not when things weren't going well in the, in the early church. It's when things were going well. In those days, the number of disciples was increasing. And you know the Great Commission, as God's people expanded beyond just the Jewish believers, went to the Gentiles, went to the Greeks, the Hellenists, and the numbers were increasing. You see, the way I understand the Bible, the way we ought to understand the Bible is it's not only missional, but it's cross-cultural, right? It's breaking relationships, it's building relationships and breaking barriers with people who thought they were God's people, all of a sudden working with the Gentiles, who they had no relationship with before. It was the gospel, you see. The gospel is the reason why there was this unity. There was community that was building. So we have this nice picture of Hellenists and Hebrews coming together, and then all of a sudden, there's a problem, right? What is it? The widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, right? The system wasn't working in terms of distribution. So what happened was there was a complaint that arose. Now, anyone who's gone to church uh, knows what a complaint sounds like. If you're a leader of a church, you know what that sounds like, right? And there was a dilemma here. The leaders, the church leaders, uh, had to address this. But now, there's a couple things that you have to keep in mind here in my study of this passage. What was fascinating to me was they created what later became known as deacons, right? So if you think about the early church, and I was a deacon before I became a ruling elder and, and all that, but um, the deacon originally in this passage was intended to help with what? Not just distribution of food, right? It's justice, right? It's racial justice. It's dealing with some of the issues. This was one of the key officers of the church dealing with justice in the church. Uh, when you read it that way, it gives so much more weight to the role of the deacons, uh, doesn't it? The ordained officer and their responsibility is not just waiting on tables, but resolving this conflict that has arisen. Now, you gotta feel bad to some extent for the Hebrews. God's people who were happy to share the gospel and they started reaching out. Uh, nice community. They're just about to start singing Kumbaya together, but there's a problem, right? Uh, what do you do? Now, was it intentional, right? Was the response here from the Hebrews, did they say, hey, we didn't mean to do that. Give us a break. Why are you always jumping on the dominant group, right? We're, we're God's people. You're God's people. We don't see the distinctions, but clearly there was. And nothing is accidental in the Bible, right? Everything is in their own purpose. So I read this passage, uh, and I share it with you all today because I think this is something for us to learn from as we hear about this disunity within the church. It was within the church. Well, it's fascinating later on if you read this passage, they name the people. I have always have a hard time with the names, right? But it turns out these are Greek names. People they put in charge to, to work and do this uh, work of reconciliation we're in the minority group. Now that's interesting to me, right? I think oftentimes we'll think, well, I'll, I'll figure it out or I'll ask people who look like me and think like me to solve this problem. No, in the early church, the 12 gathered and the decision was made, choosing seven from among them, full of the spirit and wisdom, and they were actually in the minority. So there's a lot to glean from here and I'd love to share more, um, but that's one of the points I wanted to stress. But I don't want this one message to be lost, that it wasn't from the dominant group, which was the Jews at the time, the Jewish Christians. I don't want you to hear this and say, how do we solve this problem, right? It wasn't merely quieting down the minority group, the, 
the Greeks at the time, right? Perhaps if there was a hashtag back then, they would have said, Greek lives matter. And maybe the Jews would have said, no, all lives matter. But the problem wasn't simply to address Greek lives, right? I don't want, that's important, but that's not the only issue. It was the daily distribution of food, right? It was also a class issue. They had, to re, they had to figure out a system that was broken. And when the system was broken, it wasn't simply blaming the Greeks. Why didn't you get in line sooner? It wasn't simply blaming the Jews, right? Saying, why are you denying? It was a system that needed to be fixed so badly that we appointed deacons. We created deacons. If you've heard me talk before um, on race and reconciliation, um, you've probably heard this story. It, it bears repeating. A lot of what I'm going to share actually is I've said it many times before. I'm a bit of a simpleton. Um, I, I figure I'll just keep saying the same thing over and over and again. Um, people will say, well, why do you keep saying the same thing? I say, well, what I have to say is really actionable. And unless there's change, I shouldn't change my message. Right? Why come up with something new when the problem hasn't been fixed? So a lot of the things I'm going to say are probably repeats if you've heard me or read anything that I've written. But let me start with this story of the elephant and the giraffe. It's not my story. Um, it's uh, R. Roosevelt Thomas and uh, his colleague uh, Woodruff, Building a House for Diversity. It's a secular uh, book. Probably the best part of the book is this parable. It's probably three pages long, but I'm going to condense it for you. Um, the Elephant and the Giraffe. So once upon a time, there was a giraffe. Giraffe had this beautiful home that was built for giraffes. And it... Uh, the giraffe was an architect, had all these beautiful skyscraping windows, narrow hallways. Again, it was perfect for a giraffe. Won awards, in fact. Giraffe magazine, uh, home of the year. And uh, other giraffes said, oh, this is such a nice-looking house. Giraffe is working, doing some work upstairs, looks out the window, and he sees his friend, the elephant. He says, I know this elephant. Our parents, uh, we're in PTA together. Um, our kids play AYSO soccer. Yeah, I think he's an architect as well. I'm going to be hospitable. I'm going to invite that elephant over to my house. Right? Good giraffe that he is. He invites the, giraffe, uh, the elephant over. The giraffe says, come on in. And uh, they encounter the first problem. What is it? The elephant can't fit through the door. Why? Because it was too narrow and too tall. So the giraffe says, ah, I know the solution. I've designed the doors to accommodate, so I can grant you access. The elephant's in. They're about to have a good conversation. They talk for a little while, and then Mrs. Giraffe calls and says, honey, there's a phone call for you. So the giraffe says, I'm going to be right back. Make yourself at home. The giraffe goes upstairs and takes a call. The, meanwhile, the elephant's kind of making himself at home. Tries to walk around, but the hallways are too thin. The living room's too small. He's bumping into things, knocking over land, breaking the walls, tries to climb upstairs, breaks the stairs, backs back down, makes this commotion. The giraffe comes back downstairs, says, what's going on? And the elephant says, ah, you told me to make myself at home. I'm trying to make myself at home. The giraffe says, oh, I see the problem. You're too fat. It's you. If you lost some weight, I think you can fit nicely in our house. Or maybe if you're lighter on your feet, take some ballet lessons or something, right? And be a little bit more nimble. I like having you here. But in order for you to stay, you're going to have to change. Well, the elephant's not convinced. The elephant's thinking, 
I don't know if a house that is built for giraffes is intended for elephants. Now, this is a nice, safe uh, example that I could give you, right? So no one's going to get upset. Like, who, who's the elephant and who's the giraffe, right? It's, and you got to feel bad for the giraffe, right? Because the giraffe was being a good witness, <laughs> wanted to share with the elephant. Hey, come on into my house. Made accommodations so that you can have access. But fundamentally, you got to understand, if the structure was built, the architecture of the mind, if not alone the buildings themselves, are built for giraffes, then it is nearly impossible for a non-giraffe to fit in. Now, you got to look around at the architecture and try to understand this. I, you can apply it to a lot of different contexts. But my own experience has been the same. I, in, in many ways, felt like an elephant in a world full of giraffes. I went to giraffe schools, maybe giraffe churches, giraffe communities. And it's, it's something that's so implicit that if you're a giraffe, you get it. But if you're not, you got to figure it out. Now, the reality is I have a lot of friends who are elephants pretending to be giraffes. And uh, you, after a while, if that's the only way you can have friends, you start hate being an elephant. Some of you might be able to relate, right? You didn't like the very existence of being an elephant. And yet, God created the elephant and the giraffe. So it's funny that we would struggle with self-hate in these ways. Let me talk a little bit about myself. It might be helpful. Now I've been talking for a few minutes and you're able to size me up. And you get a sense of what's visible and invisible, or what is explicit and what is implicit, right? So feel free, let's have some conversation here. What is, what is visible? What do you know or notice about me as I've been talking for a few minutes? What, how would you, how would you, what would you say? What is explicit about me? Yes? Okay, Asian. Handsome, did you say? Yes. <laughs> good. Very good answer, yes. Um, handsome, Asian American, right? That's a pretty good guess. Uh, what else? Well-dressed, well thank you. Yeah, this is how we roll in Southern California. Um, Male, right? Long hair. Yeah, I keep the hair long so that people won't confuse me with this guy, Julius Kim, who's a friend of mine. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, long hair, good-looking, Asian man. Good. Okay. That's pretty much it. You guys pass. You can stay. Those are visible. What's invisible, right? Maybe marital status, right? You can make some assumptions that I'm probably Christian if I'm invited to a place like... Uh, Covenant College, probably make another assumption that I'm Presbyterian, which is also true, right? Uh, heterosexual, cisgendered male, right? Those are probably some good assumptions that you can make, but they're invisible. But along with things that are explicit, right? Asian American male, what are implicit assumptions that you have when you look at someone like me for Asian American? Now, if I had the PowerPoint up, I would show you. There would be maybe some math solutions on the wall, maybe a picture of Bruce Lee, uh, maybe some technology something, right? So there are certain assumptions. I, I, it's knowing laughter, right? Asian Americans, they're probably technologically savvy, probably good at math. Maybe he knows some sort of martial art, right? Taekwondo or uh, right? karate or something. Maybe he played an uh, instrument, 
growing up? Violin or piano, I'm guessing. Uh, those are implicit biases that you will have, assumptions that you'll have that are probably mediated in society. Movies that you watch, uh, television shows, probably uh, in a negative uh, stereotype of what Asian American men are. Maybe you've had some relationships with other Asian American men and you thought, oh yeah, that's right. Um, maybe English is a second language, right? He sure sounds like he speaks well. This is a perfect example uh, I was born in Alexandria, Virginia. So I'm from the South. Yay, yay South. Uh, we like to joke and say we're actually uh, all from the South. We're South Korean, so we are from the South. Uh, and that's also true. But from the South, my name, Alexander, my sister's name is Virginia. My parents thought it'd be great, give them good American names. Um, and I lived in uh, Alexandria and Falls Church until I was six or seven. So I was born speaking English. But you'd be surprised, even as I give a talk like this, and at the end of a lecture, uh, I would, and people would say, your English is so good. <laughs> yeah, I'm amazed. And you know, depending on my mood, I will answer either, you know, thank you very much, I worked really hard at it. Or I said, yeah, yeah, can you, I just, I just learned last month. Just last month, it's a miracle, praise the Lord. And, you know, I can get cheeky with it. Um, that's usually good on more negative days. You know, I'll get upset. But this is what uh, some psychologists, sociologists will refer to as a microaggression. I can get into some of this a little bit later, right? It's very subtle, uh, slight comments that are made, assumptions that are made, right, um, uh, that remind me that I'm a, an elephant in a world of giraffes, right? Because something in the way that some people are wired in a dominant group, are they going to say, what? I just wouldn't associate you with being a non-math person. I don't associate you with being a good English speaker. I don't associate you with being a good driver. Whatever it is, um, that's a Southern California thing. Maybe that one uh, went over your heads. Anyway, Asians are known as not being good drivers. Uh, but that's typically how we understand it. Now, there's this guy named Jeremy Lin. Are you familiar with the basketball player? Yeah. That, the Lin Sanity, right? That's why it doesn't make sense to most people, right? Uh, Linsanity doesn't make sense because there's not that many Asian-American players in the NBA. There's a lot in Asia, but there's not that many in the NBA. <laughs> yeah, a lot. Professionals, too. Um, but you have a hard time trying to understand a guy like Jeremy Lin. And I remember the early days when he came out, people were trying to make sense. I was watching SportsCenter. This is uh, most groups, most commentators are saying, yeah, Jeremy Lin kind of plays like, uh, well, he's got a style sort of like, and they couldn't place him. Right, because they had no reference point. Uh, but I guarantee you the next guard that comes in who's Asian American is like, yeah, he kind of plays like Jeremy Lin, <laughs> right? So it's really interesting. The fun stories about Jeremy Lin that he tries to get into his own building as a player and they're like, are you a, are you a, uh, uh, what is it? They, they say you're the physician, right? Are you uh, something to do with the coaching staff? But they didn't see him as the player. Uh, those are safe examples of implicit bias. In the last few years, check that, in the last 50 years, no, I'm sorry, in the last 400 years, there have been examples of implicit bias in the United States, assumptions that we've made about certain groups of people that are highlighted probably more in the last few years simply because of social media, that we have a much better sense. Now, probably a generation ago, nobody believed that things were actually happening. You heard the story of Emmett Till, uh, a young boy who was killed because he looked at a white woman the wrong way. This is an African-American boy, uh, beaten so badly he was unrecognizable. And his mother insisted on an open casket. 
Why? Because this is the early days, right, of social media, if you will. I want people to see what happened to my boy. We need evidence of this, otherwise people wouldn't believe it. Even with social media today, people don't believe it. Now there's a whole thing with fake news that we can talk about as well going on on Facebook, but the empowerment now that has happened with people on social media to document these atrocities, and they are, they are atrocities, and they continue to happen. You ever heard the expression, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail? I've got some friends who work in uh, law enforcement one friend in particular is a county sheriff, and his experience has been um, the first thing that county sheriffs do, I don't know if this is across the country, but it's certainly in, in um, Los Angeles County, they work in the prison system. They do three years in the prison system, they rotate through, and then they, they work, in, uh, work the streets. And after three years in the prison system, he says everyone he sees looks like a convict. Every person that gets pulled over, he goes, you look like that guy who was in for five years for... Uh, grand theft auto or 10 years for, for murder and all these other crimes. He looks familiar, right? That's the implicit bias, the tape that plays in your mind constantly about associations with certain people. In fact, um, Harvard University uh, researchers have put together things called the uh, implicit association test. You can just look it up on Google, implicit association test, and you can have a free online uh, survey a uh, real quick example of how implicit our biases are with groups. And it's a fascinating study uh, that we continue to see problems today. That the first assumption that we have when we see an African-American male, right, is fear. Now some of this stuff is fascinating. It's not just the police, right? I talk to some African-American friends and they say, the, the, who's, the most, who's the most dangerous person, uh, black man's most afraid of? in downtown Los Angeles, sometimes it's another black man. We've internalized it in some cases, right? That even black people will be afraid of other black people. And it's this sense of uh, uh, implicit bias that continues to get played out. I say that it's not as dangerous maybe for Asian Americans. Um, uh, that happens to be true, except for we have documented proof of this as well. Um, Asian Americans during the World War II Right? Japanese Americans in particular, if you know your history, right, uh, were interned. Now, I never really understood the word interned. Um, I think we should have called them, uh, um, what, prison camps? Um, what, did they, what did we call them in uh, Germany? Anyway, we call them internment camps in the United States. It sounds really sort of sanitized, right? It was for their own protection. Um, it's fascinating. That's actually come back around, hasn't it, recently, right? Um, who knows after January 20th what's going to happen? Are we going to start registering our Muslim neighbors? Right? Japanese Americans who survived internment camps are saying, we tried that in the United States. It doesn't work. It's not a good idea. And so people who've experienced suffering on a systemic level are saying, please listen. Please listen. Registering people based on religious affiliation is a bad idea. It's a bad idea. And if you're Christian, it's just unbiblical. Let me get back to the Bible and talk about unity and reconciliation. Now, the Bible is full of examples of unity and reconciliation, is it not? This is not a new concept. Social justice is not a liberal word. Um, it's biblical, and it's replete throughout the Bible. You just have to have the eyes to see it. That's part of the challenge, I think, is we fail to see. Again, how many times does an elephant need to explain to a giraffe 
that the system is set up for giraffes, that the elephants don't feel welcome at times. How many times do you need to say it, explain it, document it, prove it, if you can't see it? So, you know, uh, we think about uh, past failures of the church when we focus primarily on the spirituality of the church. and We don't address practical issues. As I read in Acts, when we talked about food and the distribution of food, we said, uh, we need to address this. It's a biblical concern. Let's put officers in this. We didn't say, that's not our concern. Right? That's not something that the church needs to worry about. That's a, that's a worldly problem. I think about the, the failure to see that sort of leads to a form of idolatry. Um, I've lived in Cambodia for several years. Uh, lived there from 2010 to 2013, took our family there. I was doing research, uh, did some work with uh, Mission to the World. Um, uh, seconded to them. It was a great experience. And what was interesting is, you know, the churches, and I lived in um, uh, People's Republic of China for a year uh, before I did my graduate work. Some of you may have a heart for missions, which is great. Praise the Lord. What you'll notice in some of these countries, Cambodia, uh, People's Republic of China, you'll see flags, Cambodian flags, or you'll see uh, um, People's Republic of China. You'll see a flag in the church. And I know a lot of missionaries had a hard time they're like, oh, this is so, ooh, it's so anti. I just can't worship with a, with a Chinese flag, a communist flag in the church. It just seems so wrong. Now replace that flag with an American flag and tell me what the difference is. Right? The idolatry, and the nation, the, the idolatry of nationalism is easily seen when you look at the other. But we seem to be able to have this seamless process when we see American flags in the church, when we have issues with nationalism. We associate nationalism with Christianity. I have this equation that I love to use. Christian equals American equals Western equals white equals Republican equals, you can fill in the blank. Now, if you're not part of that tradition, right, then you otherize people. You say, well, you're not part of me, right? Um, this is what uh, Christina Cleveland talks about in Disunity in Christ. She says, good Christian, bad Christian, right Christian, wrong Christian. It's a great idea, you know, this psychological uh, thing that happens in our mind that, that you're with us or you're not with us. And the gospel has broken down those walls, friends. Why do we keep building them up? This whole idea of nationalism, what's going on, how Christians speak into certain areas of politics. I'm not saying we shouldn't be civic-minded. We absolutely should. We should be engaged, but... This, this is a bit of a, a challenge for me as I think about it, especially when you travel abroad, uh, but you'll see it here too. And how much weight we put in to certain symbols that we carry in greater weight than we should. Friends, I think part of the problem is this misunderstanding of perhaps covenant theology. I look out and I see black and white and other groups of Christians, and I think we're united by the blood of Jesus, right? Where there's no separation. Part of that is because being Asian American, right, I have much more of a collectivistic understanding of, of, uh, of life, right? When I see Jeremy Lin, though he's Chinese American and I'm Korean American, there's a kinship, there's some connection there, um, I'm familiarity. On the flip side, the tragedy that happened in Virginia Tech, for the guy who will be named, uh, not be named, for originally a, a South Korean. I don't know if some of you remember what happened. It was a great tragedy. 
um, South Koreans came out and apologized. The government apologized for what happened to one of their citizens. Koreans, myself included, felt horrible because I hate to look at somebody who looks like me, who did something like this, so, so horrible. It's the collectivistic side of me. When our denomination repented of years of uh, mistreatment and civil rights abuses, uh, primarily dominant white against uh, African-American brothers and sisters in the church during civil rights, and we had this uh, overture, I repented as well. Why? Why would I be able to repent when I have friends of mine who are white who would say, but I've never owned slaves. I, I personally never mistreated people. You know, I was always kind to blacks and Asians. Uh, why should I repent of this, right? I think fundamentally there, it's this individualistic understanding that is probably tied to uh, the West and uh, North America that we think individually, right? Not collectivistically and certainly not covenantally. My pastor, fairly new at my church, came from New Jersey, Korean American, uh, moved to Los Angeles, and he says, oh, I love the Lakers. Uh, Lakers used to be pretty good. Um, and he says, yeah, how was the game last? We won. We won. And he says, we won. And I think, you don't play for the Lakers. You have no affiliation with that organization. Plus, others would get self-righteous and say, you're not even from Los Angeles. You have no reason to cheer. We get collectivism. We do, don't we? Cheer for your team. People never went to Auburn cheering for Auburn. Never went to Clemson cheering for Clemson. Nobody cheers for Alabama, I heard. Um, <laughs> it's this fascinating connection with if you never went to the school, but it's my school, it's our team, right? We get that. We get that. But when it comes to something like this, we fail to see. We fail to see the collectivistic nature. Um, it's fundamental. Uh, this is how we share the gospel. We share the gospel, we say, you're a sinner. Well, what did I do wrong? Well, it wasn't you, it was in Adam. Oh my gosh, okay, then what do I need to do? Well, nothing you can do. It's the second Adam, right? We get the federal uh, headship. We understand. We understand uh, covenant communities. But for some reason, when it comes to this, we get all individualistic real fast. Um, we misunderstand grace. We, I, goodness, I know you are well-catechized folk here. Um, we talk about it's by grace and not by works. And yet when we talk about systemic injustices and we talk about wealth that has accumulated over generations and generations of generations off the backs of some people to benefit others, and we say, no, 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 I got to where I am because I worked hard. Now, fundamentally in that statement, two things. One is you're saying the other person didn't work as hard, right? You're saying that person doesn't deserve to be here. Right? How does affirmative action work? We can talk about that. But fundamentally, you're saying, I worked hard, I belong here. It's all my merit. Right? Never mind the generations of knowledge that was accumulated if your parents went to college. How did your parents go to college? Well, their parents went to college. How did they go to college? Because they had access to it. Think about higher education in the United States. Right? It was limited. It was a privilege, not a right. We didn't teach slaves how to read or write. Why? What would be the benefit of having them read and write? Generations of that, it doesn't go away because you get rid of slavery. Jim Crow laws don't go away because, because you have Civil Rights Act passed. Right? It's generational. 
if it took us 400 years to get into this, it's not going to get solved in five or six years. But fundamentally, it's not in the laws. It's in our ability to see. It's our ability to have this consciousness that's going to be most important. And you notice I said we. I didn't say you. I'm a part of the system. I'm a part of the system. As an Asian American, I could talk about the sociological effects of Asian Americans who are both at once part of the problem, right? But also, um, we've been uh, wronged as well, right? But Asian Americans, you know, we, uh, generally speaking, and this is dangerous, if you're a Korean American, it may be true, uh, but, you know, it's a stereotype. Stereotypes aren't that they're untrue, they're just incomplete. As Chimamanda Adichie likes to say, they're incomplete. So Korean-Americans, oh, I know lots of Korean-Americans who did well. Why can't other people be like them, right? What happens there is you start pitting one minority group against another, right? That's problematic. But ultimately, we talk about this, that I deserved it because I worked hard. We fail to see the systemic issues, generational and systemic issues that built up over time. I'd heard this other, I've been doing a lot of reading recently, um, on African-American experience in the church. By the way, if you haven't, um, and you should follow, uh, the Reformed African-American Network, a great organization. Um, Jamar Tisby, uh, the founder and president of this organization, Reformed African-American Network. Now let that sit in your mind for a minute. Beautiful organization, and uh, I love what they do. But they're on Facebook, and uh, they have a website and other things, so uh, please follow them. But as I'm reading some of the things, as I think about African-American experience in the United States, and I heard this recently, I think, in the, one of the presidential debates, that they talk about these, these homes, the problematizing African-American homes, um, black men in particular, people growing up without fathers. Um, one scholar was saying, well, think about where this came from. And this is something that you might want to consider. Um, generations and generations of slave owners who would take men and treat them basically like um, animals and have them impregnate women in different groups so they can have stronger young men and raise up more slaves, right? But the men and women didn't live together, no, no. They, they would send them off, they'd separate the families. They'd separate the men from the women, they'd separate the parents from the children, right? Because they weren't people, right? They were slaves. Maybe one step a, a, a above um, beasts of burden send them off generationally. And then all of a sudden slavery ends is this sort of magical expectation that a culture would then somehow emerge, that they'd have a normal uh, family, right? What we would consider a normal family. This is historic, right? So we can't turn around and say, well, well, that was a long time ago. How do we, you know, why, why is it still happening? Well, we still haven't addressed this issue, right? In South Africa, you know, they, the anti-apartheid in the 90s uh, when apartheid finally ended, they had the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. In one sense, I'd I visited uh, Cape Town last year. In one sense, I feel like they've made a lot more progress in their version of civil rights because they had these Truth and Reconciliation Committees. And uh, you hear these horrible stories of what happened during the apartheid era. And uh, people would listen, and there'd be reconciliation. The part that was missing in the United States, and still is missing, in truth and reconciliation, is the truth part. We love reconciliation. We love mercy. But we don't talk much about the justice. And I think what's missing fundamentally is we got to talk truth. we got to talk truth. 
part of what I do for a living now, as God's called me to this work as a faculty member and as a researcher, is to speak truth, hopefully in love, uh, but to speak truth. And uh, these are truths that we need to sit in and try to resolve and try to make sense of. Not a quick resolution. Um, this is a, a harsh example, but I think of uh, generations and generations of a family, maybe a spousal abuse, let's say, right? It doesn't simply end with the father saying, I'm sorry. Does it get rid of all of the previous 20 years of abuse? I don't think it's that simple. The expectation of the husband will certainly be, I said I'm sorry, I confess, now let's move on. Why are you being so difficult? Why do you keep bringing up the past? Friends, we're not against talking about the past, are we? Fourth of July? We still talk about, but we still celebrate what we did to the British. You gotta feel bad for the British. Man, we lorded over them every year with the fireworks and the celebrations and all this stuff. Every year we talk about it. We don't forget. But when it comes to talk about slavery or Jim Crow laws, we're like, oh, that was so long ago. Why do you keep harboring on the past? Right? 9-11, we keep talking about 9-11. We should. We should remember these things. Something funny in our minds happens when it's something that's positive for us and it feels good, we want to remember and celebrate. When it's negative, something psychological just naturally happens. We're like, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. And I get bothered when people keep bringing it up. But we got to keep talking about it. That's part of the solution. What I'm talking about here is twofold uh, issues. There's the individual, as I mentioned earlier, and then the systemic. Now, you got individual things that you got to deal with. Now, you might do a quick check on yourself and say, okay, have I used the N-word? Have I said anything negative? Have I laughed at a certain uh, group? No, no, no. Okay, so I'm good. But you're not. Not if you're in the covenant family, right? Because it takes a system. And part of it is just complicity by silence. That's the way it works. Bystander effect, psychologists will talk about that, right? In order for something to work, you have to have enough people who know what's going on and are doing it deliberately. Then another group of people who kind of know, but you know, they're sort of, they're involved, but they're just following orders. And then the third group who do nothing but look the other way. That's the system, that's a systemic approach. Now laws that we have in place, people were very intentional about, redlining, and uh, uh, real estate and, and, and how we block certain groups out of communities, right? That was very intentional. Once you hear that, what do you do with that information? Right? It takes everyone to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear in order for the system to, to, per per to perpetuate. And really, the success of this beautiful system is it works as long as we do nothing. As long as we do nothing, the system continues. So it takes tremendous effort, intentional effort, uh, to work the other way, to try to combat some of these systems of injustice. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, since we're in higher ed, I'd love to share some of these things. Uh, some of you are familiar with what happened at the University of Misery, I'm sorry, the University of Missouri <laughs> system. Uh, they had uh, some problems of racism on their campus, right? Ongoing uh, abuses, uh, slurs, uh, someone drew some uh, negative remarks in fecal matter, um, comments about African-American students, etc. cetera. Uh, people had it enough. Jonathan Butler, one of the uh, organizers of this, went on a hunger strike. And he said, I'm not eating again until we get this resolved. Other students started joining the hunger strikes and faculty started getting involved. And then the black football players 
said, we're not playing another game. We're not playing another football game until we, something happens. We want the president to resign. We want the system to be changed. Um, and there was some movement there. But then the entire football team, black, white, coaches, everyone, said, we're not playing. We're not playing another game. There was solidarity in this. That was good. That was good. Movement started happening. And what happened there was, wait a second, the administration said, what? Football, that's a million dollars every Saturday. We, we can't not have a game. We better address this, right? Because this is what um, critical race theorists would call interest convergence. Interest convergence. They didn't really care about what was going on, but we're not losing a million dollars on my watch, so let's do something. Anyway, if on my more cynical days, this is how I view the world. Uh, they started getting involved, and there was change, right? The president resigned. The, the system chancellor resigned. And this was a great victory. We haven't had this kind of student movement since the 60s. People were talking about this. I was a little sad because the issue is not, although I appreciate the movement and sort of the, the power of the students, it's not as easy as saying we need to get rid of the president, right? Because that's the easy way out. These students might have had big dreams. They were celebrating, you know, having what they were able to accomplish. But I don't think they, I don't think they dreamed big enough. They did not dream big enough because it's a systemic issue. If they said, what do you want? What do you really want? And they said, we want the president to resign. That's an easy fix. I'll go back to interest convergence. If I'm a dean or a vice president of a school and you know, historically maybe I had a problem with this guy, right? interest convergence, this is a good time to get this guy out. I don't know what happened. But there's something about an easy fix of scapegoating to say we fixed the problem. Actually, no, you didn't fix the problem. It's still part of the system. Um, I get asked every once in a while to consider work as a chief diversity officer. And um, I have some thoughts on the work of a chief diversity officer at an institution. Um, are they important to an institution? Yes. But in many ways, I feel like they're caught in a system too, because oftentimes that person is a person of color and they're doing work and they're caught in a system. They're expected to do the impossible. Recently, I came up with an idea that they are not any different than overseers. Overseers were back in the day of slavery, right? They would put a black person, a slave, in charge of other slaves, right? Part of the challenge is overseers given a little bit more power and authority, but they actually are still part of the system. They can't change anything. So a quick and easy answer, if you're a chief diversity officer, on the one hand, you'll say, look, we're okay with protests and we want students to speak, but that's enough. Calm them down. Who do they tell that to? The chief diversity officer. Chief diversity officer, person of color, goes to this group of students, usually a group of uh, students of color, and they say, okay, I, we hear you, we got it. And they get called all sorts of names, the chief diversity officer does. Then they turn around and they go back. Oftentimes the leadership will say something, they want to imp implement a policy or something, there's going to be a lot of problems, and they'll say, oh, but I talked to fill in the blank of the name of the chief diversity officer. It's almost like a chief absolution officer, right? That somebody will come and say, hey, that wasn't racist, was it? Just tell me it's okay. Oh, I talked to Alex. He said it wasn't racist, so I'm okay. And so I get that a lot. I'm like, yeah, on behalf of all Korean Americans, in fact, on all people of color, you're okay. I will give you, <laughs> go forth and say what you want to say. Truth is, friends, I do the same thing with my female colleagues. Now, I talked a lot about race, but the same is true for gender, 
right? I walk around, I got the long hair, people think I'm you know, down with, the, with sort of a more liberal agenda and all that, I'm really not. Because um, I'm Presbyterian. Um, <laughs> you, can only be, you can only be so cool if you're a Presbyterian elder, right? <laughs> Although Derek pulls it off pretty good, I think. But I'll talk to female colleagues all the time. I say, oh, look at this. this is, that was sexist. That was sexist. And I get affirmation, right? But the problem is I'll only say that to other female colleagues. Rarely will I go to a group of dudes where we're talking and something inappropriate came up. Will I actually say, hey, you know what? That was sexist, right? There's something about that bro code when I'm in a group that it doesn't come up. Right? And I enjoy the, the male privileges that are afforded to me by doing absolutely nothing. I perpetuate the system. So it's not just race. It's not just gender. I'm assuming we're sitting in a room full of um, cisgendered heterosexual friends. It applies there too. Now, I, we can go into a whole other discussion about a whole bunch of different things. All I'm saying is... We have to do absolutely nothing for a system to continue. I'm talking about social issues, our neighbors, our friends. All right. Challenges. Tomorrow I'm going to talk about some challenges. I could do a little bit today. Tomorrow's talk is, now hold on. Now hold on. I have had... More conversations that started at, at the end of a talk like this, people come up and say, thanks for the talk. Now, hold on. I have some things I want to ask you. Get some pushback. So we'll talk about that tomorrow. The pushback I get, this idea of academic freedom, as a faculty member who embraces and loves academic freedom, political correctness, some in your generation, perhaps for undergrads, have heard this, that you're coddled, that you're soft, that you've gone a little bit too PC, a little bit too millennial for the comfort of the uh, other generations. So the ongoing debate that I hear is students are too PC, too sensitive, too, and less tolerant of dissenting perspectives. And we're creating this culture that attacks academic freedom and the First Amendment rights to free speech. Right? Is it that students are too coddled and too PC? Or is it the other, that students, generations of painful experiences with racism, and put all the other isms in, but I'm gonna focus on race. Students' painful experiences with racism finally led to this significant movement where they've had enough and they want change. Which is it? I'm going to take a few minutes, as I like to do. Uh, you can get in groups of four or five or whatever you're comfortable with. Maybe turn around um, and talk with folks and have a discussion. And um, I'd love just for a few minutes, and I'll call you guys back. Which is it? Are students too PC, too sensitive, and less tolerant of dissenting opinions, and that's what's going on right now? Or the student protests and students speaking out against these injustices, it's because they've just had enough, it's too painful, and they need change. All right, so let's get in groups, talk about that, and I'll bring you back in a few minutes.
How you doing? Good, how are you? Doing well. What's your name? Joetta. Joetta? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. What's your last name? Get out of here. Yeah. I just saw Kevin? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, I'm his youngest daughter. Oh, my goodness. All right. Nice to meet you. Um, it's been good. I really oh, thanks. It. Yeah. Thanks. I just had a meeting with your dad. We're on the same committee. He's chairing it. Oh, oh yeah. The study committee. Yeah. yeah. That's what brought me out here. And then I, got, I came out here. So first yeah. time here. Joretta? Joetta. Joanna. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm You're sorry. sick. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, Joe? Joe. Everybody Joe Smith? Joe Smith. Very cool. <laughs> All right. Your dad no, talked sorry. about Joe, you. No, oh my gosh. He's very proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> I was supposed to watch, uh, I wanted to go watch Hidden Figures with him last night. Oh, you did? Yeah, but we didn't end up going, but oh, I wanted to go. Really but good. I think he wants to watch it with you all. Oh, <laughs> oh, I'm not going to tell him <laughs>
Two minutes. Two minutes. Sounds like you all had some good discussion. I appreciate the energy in the room uh, for this late hour. So which is it, right? Are students too soft, too coddled, too PC, or I get it. Students of color have had enough. Maybe it's a little bit of both, right? Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Uh, this is a question that I hope we will continue to wrestle with. I will say one thing that uh, I'm at that age where I think I've realized now, every generation says to the next, oh, when I was in school, we had it a lot harder. Uh, the, you know, the whole walking up the snow, um, uphill, down and back uphill, uh, you know, we sort of embellish, but this, that the generations are too soft, that they, they don't get what's going on. Um, there's a whole other world with millennial and post-millennial and, and all of that, uh, the generations that grew up with handheld devices, um, be that as it may. When we talk about justice, and what I'm amazed, I will say, just absolutely amazed with a younger generation of folks, college-age students, is your ability to adapt so quickly and understand in the world that you, you live in, to understand injustice, to understand in a quicker way. One of the examples, that I heard recently in another form of justice is ageism. You're familiar with ageism, right? I mean, maybe you have a lot of friends, octogenarian friends, you know, who we, we make comments about what their ability to do or not do. I'm talking about the other way, right? Ageism for children and youth, right? We don't give enough credit to children and their minds, right? I think about the school system, public, private, doesn't matter. It's one directional. We, we don't ask students what they think. If you have an opportunity to really sit down with uh, school-aged children and get their perspective of what can be changed in their schools, right? You'll get some knucklehead answers, I'm sure, but you'll also find some gems of responses because they're in it and they know because they're the ones, they're the recipients of some of the problems, systemic problems. Maybe they won't be able to articulate it the same way as adults but we don't give them enough credit. And I think that extends to college. And eh, college students, we'll tell them what to think. There's a, a Br Brazilian educator, Paulo Freire, uh, whom I love. Uh, his whole idea of the system of education that he challenged, uh, he would say, he referred to as the banking model of education. It was a criticism of the, the approach that we use, that the brains of every student is simply like a bank and you open up the vault, you pour the knowledge in, and you close the vault, and then they go out and they reprodu reproduce the same information. Right? Generations upon generations, this is how we went through schools without much critical thinking. Right? Oftentimes, and I teach in a PhD program now, and I talk, I, one of the classes I teach is diversity and social justice in higher education, and students will tell me, 
these are like 30-something, 40-something-year-olds, and they say, I've never heard some of this stuff before. I never heard this perspective, a different view. I've, I, I've never seen it this way. Why is that? And I've been in school for a long, long time. It's kind of like people who can't do math at an early, what, what do you get? You get re remediation, right? There are remedial classes that you take. On this particular subject, when it comes to racial justice, a lot of the people who are well-educated need remedial education when it comes to racial justice. Because you can live your whole four-year career in college and never get some of this stuff. So I applaud you for coming. Maybe it was required from a class, I don't know. But you came, I'm amazed. Um, and you knew kind of what the topic was gonna be. I, I can't tell you how encouraged I am. But then it has to continue, right? You can't simply say, I took a class, I went to this guy, this good-looking Korean-American guy gave this lecture, <laughs> and I, I learned so much, right? It can't stop there. It has to be a consciousness that continues. Now, as good-looking as I am, I'm probably 30 pounds overweight. I go to the, I'm like late 40s now, I go to the doctor, Doctor says, yeah, you're uh, all sorts of things. You know, you're pre-diabetic, and you know, you, you, if you don't lose weight, then you're in danger of heart disease and stroke and diabetes. And I'm like, oh my God, well, this is not good. Doctor, what should I do? And the doctor says, well, um, diet and exercise. I said, my God, doctor, is there anything else I can do? <laughs> I mean, there gotta be something, right? I heard these like miracle pills and like these new advances in technology, and he says, no. Uh, it's pretty simple. I've been saying this my entire medical career to every person. Uh, it's simple. It's not easy, but it's pretty simple, right? So you can find quick fixes. Alex can go join a something or other. I can join a gym. You got to go. Um, uh, you can buy the you know, healthy food. You got to eat it. Uh, there's all these things that you could do that look good from the outside, but fundamentally, it's a consciousness, right? You can't do it because I gotta eat this, it's green vegetables, I gotta eat kale and whatever else. And that's, that's just, it's, not, it's, it's a consciousness. My mindset has to change. I need to change the way I think about things. I gotta think thin, right? Think thin, don't think fat. Um, that's part of it, it's the consciousness. Because once that happens, everything changes. My diet, the, the way that I approach food, social gatherings, whatever, everything will change, right? But if you want it to be more formulaic, you say, well, what foods can I eat and what can I not eat? Right? That's what it comes down to. Right? Part of the problem there is when people come and they want to talk to me or I do consulting and, and everything else, people will say, can, tell me what I need to say. Like, help me understand the right framework. And really what they're saying is, I don't want to sound racist. Right? I want good PC training from you. Right? I don't want to not be racist. I just don't want to sound racist. And this is, I think, a part of the challenge in a Christian community uh, who are so nice, right? We, and a friend confessed this to me recently. He said, I always thought that being a Christian, my niceness would cover up some of my racism. And they're not the same thing. Some of the sweetest people say the sweetest in the nicest ways, right? Some of the most horrible, horrible, conceptually horrible thoughts. So I'm talking about a consciousness that has to come from the heart. It's not a behavioral kind of change. Uh, I told you I'm an elder. I get this a lot at my church. People say, Elder Alex, should I tithe before or after taxes, right? You see where they're going with that. I said, oh, you've already answered the question for me. In your heart, you've answered the question. And maybe before the Lord, I know what you're trying to, you're trying to get away. Can I drink just a little bit 
and get away with it if you're over 21? Um, you know, is that a sin? Or like, how much can I drink without it being a sin? You're riding on the edge of, you know, of what you, and it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question because it's a heart question, right? It's a relationship with Jesus question. And I would extend this to the same as we think about uh, this issue of racial justice. What do, you, what do I need to do? Give me the formula. Give me the answers. And I don't have them. I don't have the answers. That's the great secret, right? I need consciousness from you. You need to be aware. You need eyes to see and ears to hear, hear and feet, hands and feet to actually take action as the Lord guides you in these ways and be prayerful about these things. That's the answer. Hmm. Dr. John, is there anything else I can do other than that? Other than what you just said, something else? There isn't. In Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 43 to 46, let me read this for you. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think about that as we're trying to work on the mouth, <laughs> and we're talking about the heart, right? We're trying to work on things that I could say or not say, and I'm trying to get to the heart of the issue. I'm going to borrow this example of... Uh, um, what I call apple dangling. I lived in Cambodia, and uh, we had this, uh, everything grows lush, tropical vegetation everywhere in Cambodia, rains every day, uh, except for my house. For three years, nothing grew. Uh, this apple tree just wouldn't grow, and uh, I, I, my neighbors were teasing me. Uh, my wife, Jeannie, started getting on me, and so one day I showed up with uh, a bag of apples and uh, scotch tape, and uh, that's when we knew it was time to go home. Um, well, it looks good from a distance, right? When you tie it in from a distance, oh, neighbors say, Alex, you finally did it. You got, you got apples on the tree. Uh, but after a day or two or a week, what happens? Those apples will die. They'll rot, and they're going to be ugly. Why? Because they're not tied to the life-giving source of the tree. When I think about policies, diversity policies in the church, in the denomination, in the college, I would say that they are nothing more than apple-dangling strategies, by, uh, by and large. Apple-dangling policies. They look good initially. Colleges and universities across the country will throw money at something, and it'll look good initially, but after a while, they too will rot and die and not look good. Why? Because they're not tied to the life-giving nutrients or the heart of the institution, of any institution. So we can't think of the superficial. We can fix it, and we'd be wrong, because it's temporary, got to get to the heart. We'll use threats, incentives, we'll use guilt, but at its core, right, it's, it's the heart, and the heart will lead to action. Right? You've heard this uh, saying, the confessional versus functional theology. You guys are familiar with that? Yeah. We confess that we shouldn't be equally yoked, for example. Uh, we, we should be equally yoked, I'm sorry, but then you fall in love, and the person's not a Christian, you're like, eh, maybe the Lord can work. No missionary dating, friends, no missionary dating. Uh, but what that is, it reveals your functional theology. What you say you believe versus the way you actually act, right, reveals what you really believe. And I apply this in the church as well. As we talk about racial justice, yes, I confess that it's the right thing to do. We need to do it. But functionally, we still do nothing. Nothing changes. 
and we look and say, oh, nothing changes, but I really believe it's going to happen. I go back to weight loss. I can give you lots of examples. Confess, I want to get healthier. Yes, absolutely. It's good for me. It's good for my children. Functionally, still eating Cheetos. Ah, I can't stop. Oh, but I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. But I'm going to keep eating Cheetos. I'm loving them Cheetos. All right. That's part of the problem. Now, if I use this example, I could use uh, lots of examples. Yale University had some issues in the past, um, talked about university misery system, and then there's other places all across the country with these issues that are going on. And every leader at every time uh, a, a biased incident occurs on campus, you hear the same thing. I am shocked and appalled, outraged and disappointed. Uh, this does not represent the values and mission of our institution. And I want to do consulting and just copy and paste that and say, here, here's what you say next. Coming to a campus near you, here's your response. The actions of a few do not represent the institution's missions. The problem with that, think about the example of the apples, right? We talk about a few bad apples that sort of led to this whatever it is, racist event on campus. But we don't talk about the branches, the trees, the roots, the very soil or the ecosystem that created the fruits. So again, we go back to our default individualism. Say, oh, it has to be individual. It can't be systemic. It can't be cultural. I'm waiting for the day, and it's not the best answer, but it's a, a better answer to simply say, yeah, we own this. We must have created this in our culture. Now we need to come up with a solution. Right? To face the truth first before you start leading to reconciliation. A colleague of mine, Daryl Smith, um, she's a professor, recently retired from Claremont Graduate University. Uh, wrote a book um, on diversity in higher education. She gave this great example of technology. Technology in higher education, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago maybe. Um, I didn't have email when I was in college. Um, but anyway, so technology, when it started coming and the internet and all this stuff, what happened? The universities everywhere said, this is important. We need to address this. And what did they do? They changed the entire system of it. They put every dollar they needed to to invest in what we used to have, T1 lines and floppy disks and all these things, and now everything is wireless, right? And you would never attend a college campus, probably, if they said, yeah, we have a computer. It's in the library. You want to use the internet? Come on in. It's in the library, right? You're, the first question is, you know, it's, they should add this to the uh, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Say, what's, what's the Wi-Fi password? Right? That's the first question. Even before you eat, what's the Wi-Fi password? I could eat later. I've got to get online. Um, universities changed their entire system because they said it was important. Right? Other organizations, too. You can't find a place that doesn't have uh, up-to-date Wi-Fi or technology. We say it's important. Diversity, justice, we say that's important, too. And yet, ironically, we haven't had the same sort of response, have we? We haven't refocused the entire institution and the mission to address this, right? We say, no, 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 it's important. It's a department. We have these people you can talk to. Imagine if we did that with technology. Imagine if we went to some computer science faculty member who's not very good with people anyway, and you say, hey, hey, can you, can you solve these issues for us? Everything to do with the internet, can you? No. Everybody embraced it as our own. You have a department as well, but everybody's, you're just up to speed with what's going on with technology. The same thing needs to happen with this. Don't rely on just the university to respond, right? Everyone needs to do it on their own. It's either going to from the bottom up or the top down or both, and we're going to meet in the middle.
for, for real change. That gets to the heart of an institution. I'm on the study committee. Um, the, the PCA has recently passed Overture 43 in the 44th General Assembly. Some of you are familiar with this. Some of your parents I work with on this, which is great. Um, Jojo, is it? Where's, yeah, your father's, uh, yeah, where'd she go? Oh, there you are. Uh, I love working with your dad. So, um, so General Assembly passed this uh, confession, as I'd mentioned earlier. Uh, it's wonderful. What, result, what, what came from that was another uh, overture for a study committee, which I am on, and there are about seven others of us on this. Well, now what? Right? So we confessed. Now what? How do we actually make change? You know, we want to talk about racial reconciliation. We've got to report back to the General Assembly, which will be good. We want to talk truth before we talk about reconciliation. Some simple things like uh, greater representation, which would be good. Uh, greater consciousness, ultimately, is what we need. We don't need window dressing, right? Uh, it's not just a matter of having more fill-in-the-blank, black, brown, Asian students on campuses or in churches or whatnot, though that would be good. But as I shared in Acts, what's going to happen? There will be grumblings, right? Now, if you're praying for diversity, and you're praying for change in sort of a makeup, right? And then you have these hard conversations, right? Every day is gonna be a, a diversity seminar, right? Because somebody said something and someone's gonna have a challenge to it or you hurt me and you That's hard, it's hard to have these conversations. But you know what, when you get more diverse, you're gonna have more of these conversations, not less. So know what we're praying for. <laughs> we're gonna have more of this. It's not gonna get nicer, it's actually gonna get harder. But that's where the real conversation starts to happen, where you're finally able to share. Now, some of my uh, dominant uh, white friends would share this story with me that they say, oh, I have a, you know, my, my best friend is whatever, fill in the blank. Uh, the challenge to that always is, that person may be your best friend, but are you, is, are you his best friend, right? Um, I, I might be somebody else's token best friend. The real challenge, and it's a good thing, Hear me now, it's a good thing when a person of color who's a friend of yours for many, many years finally says to you, you know this thing that you said to me once or did years ago or didn't say when I needed you really hurt me. Now you might be really offended by that and say, gosh, I thought I was getting it. I'm, you know, but now I'm, the, the person I'm closest to just told me this. Actually, that's a badge of honor because people of color we're sizing you up. We're trying to figure out if you really get it or not. Am I going to risk feelings of, uh, uh, of uh, shame and pain and uh, vulnerability with you? Do I really trust you? Am I going to tell you what you did that hurt me so badly? I'm sizing you up, right? So when I share it with you, it doesn't mean the relationship just ended. It means it just got real. So listen for that. And if it's happened to you, be of good cheer because more is coming. Because you've done more than one thing. Um, I, I think that's when you start really having some good conversations, friends. That's when you embrace it, we resolve it, we work it out. That's community. That's real community. We're not holding back anymore. I'm going to wrap up here uh, in a minute and then take questions. But um, you think about one event, any given event, and there's always more than one perspective. There are multiple perspectives on any given issue, right? I'll tell you a, a story. You, you, you're familiar with this uh, 
old, I don't know what you call it, um, proverb. Um, the early bird gets the worm, right? So we're in Los Angeles and a teacher's teaching this um, to a group of students, the teachers in a dominant uh, Caucasian group, a student full of uh, uh, students of color. Early bird gets the worm. What does that mean? And one young man, person of color, raises his hand and says, it means that you stay in bed as long as possible. You don't get up. No, you got to stay in bed. And teacher says, no, no, that's not, it's the opposite of that, actually. Why, why would you say that? And the student says, because if you get out and go out too early, the bird will eat you. Well, I didn't see that one coming. Why? We always think in the dominant group. It's our nature to be triumphant, right? We don't hear the voice of the minority. We don't hear the voice of the oppressed. The Bible is replete with examples of oppression. We read the Bible with the hermeneutic of suffering, and it's a completely different Bible. Right? There's no victory. We hear this. We know this to be true. We're living in a world now where uh, threats to what we have appreciated so much perhaps in the United States, the freedoms of Christianity, socially and otherwise, right, under threat. What's going on with the bathrooms? What's going on with the, with the curriculum? What's going on? All these issues that were a threat and we're afraid. And it's the first time maybe Christians have in the United States been in the minority in this way. We're going to fight like crazy to try to win it over on a political level or a social level, but increasingly in the minority. Who do we turn to? Dr. Carl Ellis said this so eloquently. You need to talk to people of color, Christians of color. The black church has been under assault for generations, sometimes by other Christians. And yet they survived. They know what it's like to suffer. People of color know what it's like to suffer. So if you're feeling uncomfortable and you've been in a, a dominant position and all of a sudden now you feel like you're under threat, you're about to lose something, that you're now on the lower end. You're, the, you're not the bird, but you're the worm, right? There are people, and I feel like for such a time as this, God may use uh, Christians of color to lead and guide, to say this is how you weather the storm for generations, generations. When I talk about these things, I know a lot of my uh, white colleagues have a hard time. It sounds like you're just bashing on White people, you're bashing on Americans, um, men, and all these, you know, and I just, it's hard conversations. I don't want to keep having these conversations. Imagine living like this for generations and generations. You can turn off the conversation. You can stop listening. You can walk out. You can surround yourself in a community where you don't have to have these conversations. You can go to churches where you don't have to have these conversations. That's the very definition of privilege that I'm trying to get at. And it's harder for you. I get it. Most of my research these days, I uh, just uh, wrote a book on some of this stuff. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about tomorrow. But it's, um, I'm really fascinated, this conversation of diversity. It's usually when we talk about diversity, we talk about people of color, right? Because we think, oh, diversity is an issue of people of color, right? White's a color, too. White is also part of the diversity mix, right? But the conversation is always about people of color. And I'm going to champion you, and I'm going to support you, but I hope you can get this resolved, right? Recently, I've noticed a lot more white Christians are getting involved in this conversation. 
Now, it's interesting because I think of gender the same way. I always thought gender is a woman's issue. Woman's issue, right? Gender is not female, it's male and female. Some would argue cisgender, transgender, but that's another story for another time. Male and female. And I always think it's a, a female issue, so I would champion all my female colleagues, yeah, gender issue, I, women's rights. The problem isn't the women, the problem has always been the men. Has always been the men. But the men aren't talking about it, right? We need more men talking about this stuff, even when women aren't around. That's the gender issue that we need to start addressing. Now, I'm, I'm very much a complementarian, so don't kick me out too soon. That's got nothing to do with what I'm talking about here, right? It's an awareness. UCLA, years ago, uh, UCLA Medical Center had this discussion about diversity on gender, and they wanted more women uh, physicians uh, in the cancer ward. Uh, part of the challenge was because when they talk about uh, mastectomies and the patients, primarily women, would ask the physicians, uh, how's it gonna feel if I, if I have prosthetics? And men would always answer, your husband's not gonna notice any difference. It'll feel the same for the touch. And then they asked the women who are oncologists and they would answer from a woman's perspective. This is how you will feel, not how others will feel you. Fundamentally different. Same training, years and years to be a physician. You know, some of the smartest people in the world. Uh, fellowships and extensions and all these things that they need to do. Fundamentally don't see it. That's what I'm talking about. We have to be intentional about these things. That was about gender, I'm talking about race. As I wrap up, a couple things that I really want to share with this group as words of encouragement. We are all ambassadors when it comes to this work. Ambassadors of Jesus Christ when it comes to reconciliation and justice. The very hands and feet of Christ and how it gets played out in society today in this particular issue is with racial justice. But if you can see one form of injustice, you can see the others. First thing I want to share is just recognize privilege. Recognize your privilege, sit and think about it in different ways. Have conversations with people who are different from you and then you will be able to see it more. So recognize your privilege. The second is use your priv privilege. I don't want people to walk away saying, oh, then I'm gonna start hating myself. No, that's not the answer. Uh, that's not the end goal. People will say, Alex, okay, I feel guilty now. Congratulations, you won. That's not the goal. Guilt goes back to individual understanding, right? I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the system that we're a part of, that we're all a part of. Use that system then. Use your privilege. Not to speak for others, but to speak with others. And at the same time, speak for yourself. Know your own story. You have to know your own story, your own history. I had a friend who's uh, 60 years old, recently shared this story with me. He grew up in the South, and he told me, I grew up being told to say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. And I remember when I was seven years old, my uncle was with me, and I saw a, a black man who was probably my father's age, and he was talking to me, and I said, yes, sir. And my uncle said, you don't need to say sir to him. And he remembered that, and it was locked into his long-term memory. And he was never able to let that go. He couldn't reconcile it as a seven-year-old, and he couldn't reconcile it as a 67-year-old. Know your own story. Speak for yourself and tell your own story. And then speak with your people. Talk to your people. As I was talking to, uh, about gender, right? I can't just keep talking to women. They know this already. 
I need to talk to other men and have these hard conversations and, heaven forbid, possibly lose my credibility as a, in my bro status. Uh, talk to your people. It's important. I mean, black people have enough people to talk to with each other. Asian, same thing, right? Where we don't have access is in circles of dominant groups, right? Where no one expects to have these conversations. Where this might be a good time. I'm going to look around and I'm going to tell an off-color joke and see how that goes, right? Call your friends on it. Call your family on it. Know that we are all a work in progress. So there is no end point. There is no point where we're woke, right? It's an ongoing journey, an ongoing and awakening process, sort of like sanctification. The more I learn that I'm sinful, the more I grow closer to Jesus, the more I realize that I'm sinful. I'm much worse than I thought I was. I would apply the same thing here, that there's a lot more we don't. We don't know what we don't know, right? But we're on that journey together. That's the important thing. So the next point is stop being surprised. Stop being surprised that there is racism in the world. Critical race theorists would call this uh, the prevalence of racism in society. Good Christians, good uh, reform folks would say this is, this is um, a fallen world. Total depravity. Of course there's racism. We're not going to have reconciliation this side of heaven. We just continue to work towards it. That's part of the journey. Not in and of itself. The goal is not simply for racial reconciliation. That's what my secular colleagues will deal with primarily on sort of a flesh and blood level. But we're talking about the role of the church and the role that Christians have in particular. All right, for some of us who are a little bit more woke than others, right, we're quick to obliterate. If somebody says something wrong, we're going to jump on them, right? We got to educate, not obliterate. Take that moment to educate. Sometimes it feels good to tear somebody down when they say something just very racist or sexist or whatever it is, right? But, I mean, we come across as very, very self-righteous when we do that. We have to educate. Take the time to spend the time to talk to the person, right? Because we were right there before. We were in the same position. It's uh, the, the, the term I'd, I'd heard used, tossed around is the white enlightenment syndrome, right? We're crazy. Oh, you don't understand that. How could you not understand that? A week ago, I was in the same position, but now I'm pointing fingers at everybody else, right? So you, you, you don't be surprised. Educate, don't obliterate. And finally, finally, I leave you with this. Hold on to multiple realities. F. Scott Fitzgerald famously said, uh, the test of a first-rate mind is to be able to hold on to two seemingly contradictory thoughts at the same time and still be able to function. How do you hold on to two contradictory thoughts and still be able to function? Can you still be a registered Republican and still say that racial reconciliation is important? Yes. Can you have family members who are police officers, you love the police, to protect and serve, and at the same time realize that it is a broken system? Yes. Hold on to the multiple realities. Right? Don't be overly reductionistic in our thinking. That's going to be important for a well-educated, critically thinking uh, society and well-educated folks. The other thing is read. Keep reading, please. Um, I have a few books that I'd share with you. Um, uh, Sean Michael Lucas, uh, fairly well-known in our circles, right, has a great book on the history of the PCA. Uh, For a Continuing Church is what it's called. So if you're a historian and you like history, this is a great read for you. 
Sung Chan Ra, a Korean American, um, not reformed, but uh, Christian. And I'm better looking than him, but that's okay. <laughs> he wrote a book called The Next Evangelicalism. Quite a challenging book for some. The Next Evangelicalism by Sung Chan Ra is a very good book. Um, so it's nice to have a Korean American uh, writing a book like that. And then we have an African American woman, Christina Cleveland, I think I mentioned earlier, Disunity in Christ. She comes from a psychological perspective. She was trained as a social psychologist, but uh, Christina Cleveland has a great book, uh, Disunity in Christ. And finally, this came out last year. I was a chapter author in this. This is uh, sort of homegrown. It's called Helas Emanuel. Some of you may have heard it already. Helas Emanuel, uh, a call for reconcili racial reconciliation, representation um, in the church. Doug Servin is the editor of this. He's, he's got a chapter as well. He's a white, uh, white male Christian, right? The bane of all existence when we talk about diversity work. Um, a group of white Christian men have written chapters on awakening, their own journeys, their own painful testimonies that they share about racism that they've experienced and racism that they've been a part of. And then we've got a, a handful of African-American pastors who've written chapters, all PCA folks. Um, and it's a good read, and um, it just came out last year. And there'll be another one, Heal Us Emmanuel II, coming out. This first one was all men, unfortunately. Uh, the next one, we've got a better mix, much better mix of uh, female voices as well. All right. Um, let's see, am I almost out of time? I am. So uh, this, is the this is the beginning, not the end, when we talk about this work. I have a face group, uh, Facebook group that I have that you could follow. It's called Race and Justice. If you typed in Race and Justice in Higher Education, that's primarily where my uh, doctoral researchers and I and some of my colleagues do our work. Um, so if you want to follow some of the things that we do, it's Race and Justice in Higher Education. All right. Um, that's, I have a lot more I could talk forever, but I want to be mindful of your time, and it is almost 9 o'clock. So... Uh, what shall we do? You want to take a couple questions if you have some? Maybe one or two? Yes, please. Uh, tomorrow I will start tutoring the students in Korean and Korean 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 Education's good. I like education. We need it. I think part of, the, uh, part of the challenge will be, as I said earlier, is just your own awareness. That's going to be an important lesson. And then uh, having a posture of always having a posture of learning, especially if you're going to be a teacher. Teachers are supposed to be the best learners, but we often fail in that endeavor. Um, you'll, you'll see a lot, I think, you, you, working with this particular group, if you're working with, uh, you know, if they're all... Non-white, I don't know, the population, we'll see. Yeah. You have a person here who, what's his, Brian Pickard? Yeah. Really, really good stuff. Um, you're talking about how when helping hurts, which is, you know, very well-read beyond covenant walls, let me tell you. It even got out to the left coast. Uh, <laughs> we, we even read some of that stuff. So it's good. But this idea, I think a lot of it is going to be our own challenges. Right, and assumptions. I keep hearing these things that we associate when we talk about uh, black community. We keep talking about the inner city. I'm like, why do we make this assumption that black means inner city? Why does black always mean poor? Right? Just like white doesn't always mean racist. 
right? It's, it, it goes both ways. So those are some challenges, I think, when we think about assumptions, long-held assumptions that we had, going in with that posture of learning is gonna be important. And then talking to the students and learning from them, as, as Paulo Freire would say, as opposed to they're there just for me to objectify by teaching them. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Maybe one more? Yes. question. If we're talking as a white person, um, I've got a chapter in the book coming out called White 22. I can talk more about it tomorrow. White 22. You're white if you do and you're white if you don't. Kind of like Cats 22, right? This is the burden that if you're appalled and you say this is, I'm so offended by this, and then you have friends of color who are going to say, what are you appalled about? What happened to you? Nothing happened to you and people that look like you. You take that. I mean, I think it's it's hard because we get into a certain point of fatigue, right? We were outraged when it happened to uh, uh, Freddie Gray or uh, Tamir Rice or Sandra Bland. Um, and now we can't, we're just fatigued, right? And people just can't see it anymore. So there's no right answer, I would say, other than that we stay engaged and we take the hits. Because this is the, the white 22 part that comes out. You're like, well, I want to be in solidarity. For a while, people were wearing pins, right? The, the, what was it? There, there was a, a, a bobby pin or something, safety pin that people were wearing that was in solidarity. And I said, oh, but I talked to my friend, John, who's black, and he said, yeah, it's good. I support that. But then Susie said, what the heck are you doing with that pin? That's not going to help us. Like, I give up. I don't know what to do, right? I mean, that's the challenge. There's no right answer, but stay engaged, right? Listen and learn. Um, I, I, I don't think... I would say, you know, part of the challenge that some people have with Black Lives Matter, right, is uh, the capital BLM, if you will, right, or, or the movement, the social movement, is they're, they're just straight up anti-police. And I think it's more complicated than that. Um, but be ready for challenges on both sides of this conversation with friends. I mean, that's the reality. But we have to stay at the table. We have to stay at the table. You can't just say, I, I tried and somebody said something mean to me, and I was offended because I was trying to help, so I'm gonna leave, right? Or we just lost another good person, and that was, you know, there's, there's no right answer, yeah. I, part of the challenge, too, is when there is rage, I wanna talk about tone policing, if I can, for a minute, that the idea that if there's rage and somebody's yelling and screaming, and we say, please don't do that, I can't hear you when you're upset like that, right? That's another form of privilege that we're putting on others. James Baldwin famously said, when you touch a hot frying pan and you let go, you're going to be hot. You're going to come across as just hot because you just touched something that burned you. There's no time for me to control my tone. Right? But we're so quick to say, unless you calm down, I can't hear you. Right? Again, why do we dictate not only what is said, but how it is said? So we have to actually, I flip the script and say, can we learn to listen in ways that we're not used to listening? Can we do that as brothers and sisters? Can we not just first say, here are the rules of how I want you to do this. No destruction of property. None of this stuff with like yelling and screaming. And for heaven's sakes, no kneeling. 
we, we can't, I can't have conversations like that. No, we have to learn to walk, work through those conversations. So we have to flip the script. That was a long-winded answer, but I'm a faculty member. That's what happens. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I want to be respectful of your time. It's 9.05. I think we're supposed to end at 9. So let me end with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. I thank you, Lord, that I was here with my brothers and sisters sharing in this conversation, not just about race, not just about reconciliation, but in your presence as brothers and sisters to be, able to, have, to be able to have these conversations. Help us, Lord, to be the hands and feet of Christ as it concerns social issues, as it concerns those in need, those who are voiceless and powerless and in pain and in need. Lord, we pray that we would extend this beyond just race as we think about our neighbors, our Muslim neighbors, our Hindu neighbors, our agnostic neighbors. Help us, Lord, in our efforts to even surprise them that we talk about things that matter. We talk about things that they care about. Thank you again, Lord, for this evening. Thank you for this time together. May your name always be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.